Good morning. It's so great to be together as a family, um, gathered together to uh, converse, to catch up, to pray for one another, to hear stories, to drink coffee, and be church together. And uh, it's really good. And this week, we're starting a new series. This is kind of a transition week uh, from our closing our Jonah series and opening up our Advent series, which begins uh, next week. And we've entitled the series for Advent, The Arrival. Usually we'll toggle during the year between doing a book series and then during Lent and Advent, Christmas, we'll follow the lectionary, which is a schedule that goes on a three-year rotation, A, B, and C. Um, And it has a list of scriptures that the worldwide church uh, follows um, in the calendar. You know, I grew up in the Baptist, Southern Baptist Church, Korean church, and we didn't have, you know, Advent or we didn't do the lectionary. It wasn't a high church thing. There's never candles or, you know, lighting the Advent candles. There's, we didn't do Lent or Ash Wednesday or anything like that. That was kind of like, oh, that's a Catholic thing, right? Um, that's kind of, you know, uh, it's not spontaneous. It's not something that, you know, is genuine because you're following this rote tradition or you're just following people. Uh, but now, as we're, as we're the church and being the church and figuring out what church is, it's actually refreshing for me to follow these traditions or follow these things because it means that the ideas or the themes or what we go, the rhythms that our church go through don't just come out of my mind as the lead pastor. Don't just come out of my brain. Like, this is what I think we should preach about. This is what I think we should be feeling. This is the rhythm by which we should be going based on my series. But instead, we do have a collected kind of scripture canon, uh, which the many churches follow. And that gives us uh, a submission um, to a greater community, the greater church. And I think that's important because um, it allows us to be shaped and formed by something bigger than ourselves um, and to be transformed. And so we are in the lection, we're starting in the lectionary this week. And if you want to see the scriptures, a lot of the scriptures we'll be doing in our call to worship or our communal scripture reading, uh, the scriptures in the lectionary. But you can follow that. Just Google Revised Common Lectionary. There's a good one, good calendar in the Vanderbilt.edu. Revised Common Lectionary Vanderbilt. Google that and it'll come up. Um, And we're in year A right now. Um, And today, uh, I'm preaching out of a psalm, which isn't always uh, the case. And you don't hear, usually you'll hear psalms during worship time, you know, when we're singing. There's psalms in our worship songs. Or there's psalms in the readings or in the call to worships, but it's never like, it's very rarely the main passage, the main text of a sermon. And that's because psalms are poetry. And psalms are actually, this one, in this case, it's a music, it's a worship, it's a praise song that was written for people to sing in the tabernacle. It was written for people to sing in the temple. And so, uh, and like many, like art, it's hard to break down art and give a three-point sermon, do an academic uh, breakdown of a song, music. 
It'd be like if I did a sermon on Good, Good Father, which would actually be a good sermon. The subtitle of Psalm 46 says, For the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. And sometimes we just go over this, you know, this, the subtitles and, oh, that's weird. They just put this subtitle. But you have to look carefully at the subtitles because there's a lot of background to them. For instance, according to Alamoth. What is Alamoth? I had to look it up. It's Hebrew for uh, one, one is like a virgin woman, but it's actually in, in music, it's the soprano, right? The soprano, a high, high range of voice. And so this psalm in its time was meant to be sung by sopranos, right? A choir, a, choir, a chorus of women um, in the temple. And so if you can imagine this psalm being sung by sopranos, amazing. And then sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were descendants of Korah, um, who were descendants ultimately of Kohath, which was, who was one of the three sons of Levi. And if you remember in Numbers 3, God sent aside the Levites out of the tribes of Israel for full-time service to him right, in the temple. They were supposed to take care of the tabernacle and all its implements, as well as the Ark of the Covenant, um, and only descendants of Aaron. You remember Aaron, Moses' cousin, uh, were allowed to serve as priests. So here's Aaron. His descendants were Levites. They are set aside to be priests, to take care of everything in the temple um, and its implements. And so the three sons of Levi were Gershon, Merari, and Kohath. Kohath is the father of Korah. So remember that. Kohath is the father of Korah. It turns out each of these three sons of Levi, the priestly family, uh, had responsibilities for the care of the temple. So the Gershonites were responsible uh, for the tabernacle and the tent and its coverings, the curtain at the entrance of, to the tent of the meeting, the curtains of the courtyard, the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard surrounding the tabernacle and altar, and the ropes, and everything related to, the use, to their use. The Merarites, Merarites were appointed to take care of the frames of the tabernacle, its crossbars, posts, bases, all its equipment, and everything related to their use, as well as the posts of the surrounding courtyard with their bases, tent pegs, and ropes. Remember, the tabernacle is this moving tabernacle, right? As, as the people are traveling through the wilderness in, in their journeys, um, they had to pack up the tabernacle and go. And so uh, the Gershonites and the Merites were, looked like they were in charge of these kind of the pegs and the big items of the tabernacle. The Kohathites, however, they were, they were responsible for the care of the sanctuary. They took care of the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the articles of the sanctuary used in ministering, the curtain, and everything related to the use. But unlike the two other families of priests, the Gershonites and the Merites, the Kohathites, they were not allowed to use carts. So the other two could load up all their stuff on carts and stuff, but the Kohathites had to carry their stuff. So if you remember, you know, the Ark of the Covenant was carried on their shoulders, and they actually could not directly touch these sacred items of the tabernacle. Uh, so they would be wrapped in special coverings, and they had to cover it. So later on in the scriptures, 
this group of priests got kind of frustrated. They're like, we have to carry all this stuff. We want to be like the other priests who don't have to carry stuff. And if you look at number 16, there's actually a rebellion against Moses uh, led by Kohath and a bunch of other, 250 other men rebelled against Moses, right? And Moses, uh, I think it's number 16, gives this, says this big speech and says the earth is going to open up and swallow you guys. And it happens. The earth, there's an earthquake. The earth splits up and all the Kohathites fall into the, this pit, the sinkhole. And then the Lord sends fire to burn up the rest of the 250 men. And the rebellion is squashed. But it also states in Numbers that the sons of Korah, uh, okay, Korah was the one who rebelled. He was a Kohathite. The sons of Korah will live, right? So everyone dies, but the sons of Korah live, and it's their descendants. Seven, seven generations later, Samuel, the prophet, is a, descent, is a Korahite. He's a descendant of Korah, Right? And the sons of Korah, the descendants of Korah, actually are great warriors under David. So David basically raises up, he has his worship lab, right? He raises up these warriors who are also musicians and prophets, and they prophesy, right? So they're this amazing band of people, and uh, they were great leaders in choral and orchestral music in the tabernacle. So the sons of Korah, are responsible for music in the, in the worship of the tabernacle in the temple. And so Psalm 46 says, For the director of music of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. So this is an amazing backstory. It's a story of redemption, this line of sons who come out of this rebellion against Moses, and they're destroyed Right? Their ancestors are destroyed by God, and yet the sons are spared, and they become these great worship leaders in the temple. And they're responsible. Uh, so some of the Psalms in the Bible, they're responsible. The, the sons of Korah are responsible uh, for 11 Psalms in the Bible. And there's some really famous ones, some, some Psalms that, beautiful Psalms that um, express this humility this gratitude, this longing and deep devotion for God. Um, lines like, as a deer panteth for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you. Or Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O God. And here in our psalm, Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. And also, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in danger right? Ooh, that's sweet. Let's go home. Um, but Psalm 46, it's famous. It's encouraging, right? Be still and know that I am God. We so want to get to this line. You're waiting for me to get to this line. Be still and know that I am God. It's that precious moments line, right? It's the Hallmark card, it's the one on the poster in the churches. Be still and know that I'm God. Like those posters with someone rock climbing, and it says courage. Or, you know, there's an ocean or a lighthouse. 
be still and know that I am God. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of the rushing wind and the, the seas and the waves breaking, be still and know that I am God. It's the let go and let God moment. In the hustle and bustle of busyness, of a distracted, hurried life, into this comes extortion. Ex- not extortion. <laughs> I'm thinking of Trump too much. Oh, sorry. Uh, comes the exhortation, be still and know that I am God. But before we get there, we need to do some work, right? We need to go through this psalm because it's a song of worship, right? And when we worship together as a church, worship is not a form of escapism. Our faith is not a naive one unaware in the matrix, disconnected from the realities of life. But it's, our faith is one that's connected, that's engaged with the realities around us. And it, there's no promise of perfection. There's no promise of a gung-ho, easy-go-lucky life. Right? Sometimes we're in the desert. We're not always in the promised land. We're both in the desert and in the promised land in life at the same time. And life gets confusing. And yet, that's where our worship springs from. That's where God is still our refuge and strength and ever-present help and danger. So let's look at the shape of this psalm. The first thing we should note, next slide, is the three pillars. The pillars. So verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. Verse 1, the beginning is a pillar of protection and comfort for us. And in the middle, verse 7, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And that refrain continues at the end. Again, it's repeated in verse 11, the final verse, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So at the top, God is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in trouble. Bam, pillar. In the middle, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Bam, in the middle. And at the end, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Boom. Strong pillars of comfort and protection. We're reminded that God is our fortress. God is our refuge and our strength. But what about the space between the pillars? Next slide. The space between these pillars of refuge, we see the first stanza is saturated with natural disaster. The earth gives way. Mountains fall into the heart of the sea. The waters of the ocean are roaring and foaming, and the mountains quake with their surging. The sheer power of the earth and its elementals. Natural disasters are powerful, right? These are literally the mountains falling into the ocean. Over here uh, in the top left is uh, in Taiwan. That's a highway, and that's a landslide. Like, basically, the earth gives way and buries, like, hundreds of people on this highway. Um, bottom left is uh, the eruption at the, su- the summit eruption of Kilauea, uh, the volcano in Hawaii. And then here are some the oceans foaming. Um, and raging. But natural disasters are powerful, aren't they? 
We hear about them all the time. Some of us are affected by them. In fact, in looking up some mudslides and landslides, I came across uh, the one in Washington, in Oso, Washington, right? Not too long ago, just a humongous slide that destroyed homes. Uh, they're beyond human control, right? Natural disasters are the great equalizer. It doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are or what ethnicity you are. We can't predict them. We can't control them. We can't stop them. And we hear daily of earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and volcanoes and tsunamis and landslides and giant sinkholes. And remember, if you go back to the lighthouse, can you imagine standing on that lighthouse, right? Just the waves crashing and you're on like the very top of the lighthouse. Or can you imagine running away from Kilauea as it's erupting? <laughs> Trying to run and then like the ooze of the lava chasing you. <laughs> or driving on the highway as massive landslide approaches to your, the side of you. The power and the destruction. And actually the violence of creation, ripping up homes and taking lives and separating families. In the space between these pillars, there is a river, also a river whose streams make glad. If you can hit the next slide, the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Life-giving water, relief and assistance. In Scripture, the image of water, the river and of water is good stuff, right? Rivers in the wasteland, streams in the desert, living water that springs up to eternal life. Water represents the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Water is the stuff of baptism, right? You, are, you go into the waters and you die and you come out cleansed with new life in the waters of baptism. Water uh, in Ezekiel 47 is an amazing image. A river begins from the temple, right? Trickling up from behind the altar. A small little trickle. Um, and then it flows east out of the temple, meandering its way. And as it's flowing towards the sea across the land, it gets bigger and bigger. And the scripture says that everywhere it, go, everywhere it goes, everything it touches will live. Right? And so there's these images of on both sides of the rivers, trees are sprouting up and growing. There's an abundance of fish right, and fruit trees uh, whose leaves never wither. And the fishermen are casting their nets and they're just catching fish left and right. Everywhere it goes, everything lives and there's abundance. Abundance of fruit and fish. And these trees always bear fruit. This image of the river flowing and giving life. That's amazing, amen? There's an old Indigo Girl song that says, the Mississippi is mighty. It starts in Minnesota at a spot where you can cross with two steps across. Uh, and then it says, then it, then it gets really big. And that's how you started like a pinprick in my heart. And now you 
come rushing over me, something like that. But something, right, it starts at the altar and trickles, and it grows and it grows outward. This is an amazing image for the church, right? What the church is, being the church, right? It's not that we're flooding here with this well and just drinking of it ourselves here, but it's this river, these streams that are flowing out of the church into the land, and everywhere the rivers go, there is life. And if we are the streams going out from the tabernacle, everywhere that we go, life, right? And, and that's, that's being the church, that's being the people of God. But in the space between these pillars, are not, however, is not just natural disaster and violence of natural disaster, but also political turmoil. Verse 6, nations are in an uproar and kingdoms fall. There's upheaval. There are powers rising and falling. There's this side and there's that side. There are alliances made in backroom deals. There are betrayals and soldiers abandoned on the battlefield. The nation is in an uproar. Nationalism is roaring. People are migrating by the millions. They are escaping death. They are seeking life. There's no place for them here. He said this. She said that. He did what? He has done. Speak your truth. There is news and the rumor of news and the insecurity of news and information and hacking and Twitter wars and drug deals and this farce, a comedy show, a downright witch hunt. No, this is defending the Constitution. Quid prid quo. Wait until I get my hands on you. You, you, I'll kill you. Hashtag. You die, I live. Political turmoil. Nations are in an uproar and kingdoms fall. And then, verse, verse 7, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Breathe. 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 And once again, in the space between, there are wars, nations against nations, violence and conflict. See what God has done. He has brought desolation on the earth. Verse 8. Now he brings a ceasefire, seizes war from one end of the earth to the other. Verse 9. Breaks bows and shatters spears. Verse 9. And terminates nukes and their bombs and their bombs and words of the bully and fists of the abuser, and all the AR-15 rifles have their barrels filled with flowers, and the children carry them, and sticks and stones, and all the armor we wear because of war, physical shields, emotional shields, relational shields, spiritual encasements are melted away like melting earth in the power and peace of the Lord. The eternal ceasefire will come. It has come. It is coming, amen? In the space between as war and violence and death and political upheaval and division and natural disasters and the po politics after natural disasters and the war and the violence and the death. And then God says, be still and know that I am God. Be Be still. 
Be still and know. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know that I am God. We cannot get to these words and let them really sink in and know until we've gone through the entire psalm, until we've experienced the suffering, until we see the disaster and the violence, until we recognize that the world is chaos and the church cannot sing praise or magnify the Lord in his glory because he is our fortress unless we recognize the world around us, amen? Unless we see and experience. And that's Advent. That's Advent. It's not just peppermint mochas and red plastic Starbucks cup, although those are nice. Pumpkin spice latte. Uh, It's not just Black Friday or Cyber Monday or Taco Tuesday or whatever it is. <laughs> it's not just the 12 days of Christmas and Christmas carols and putting up our lights, right? It's not just that. It's knowing, it's resonating with Jesus, who Jesus is, that Jesus reigns. And his reign meant that he came as a child and as a child, his, even his birth was threatened. His very life, his family was threatened before his birth, right? Pilate was seeking out the babies to put an end to Jesus' birth by killing all babies, right? And they fled as refugees to Egypt, right? Fleeing political turmoil, And they came back during the census to Bethlehem, right? Overcrowded. There was no place. All the rooms were filled. They were homeless without a place to stay. And they landed in a barn. And Jesus was born in a manger, in a trough, trough where animals eat. And that's how the reign of Christ begins in our earth. Not in magnificent glory. Not at the height. Like, oh, look at me. Right? But humbleness, humility, and in suffering as a refugee, as a fugitive from the law. We need to embrace that we need to embrace the chaos in our own life. We need to embrace the suffering in our own life. We need to embrace the natural disasters around us. And then into that, God says, as we sing in the chorus, as we sing in the temple, be still and know that I am God. This is the Psalms, right? When do you open up the Bible and read the Psalms? I, when I'm really struggling, 
That's where I go. I don't go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I don't go to Genesis or Exodus. When I'm struggling in my heart and my soul, I open up those Psalms, right? Because it's, that's the real stuff. It's gritty. It's like, oh, oh, I'm suffering, but God is good. God is my fortress. <sighs> We're both in the desert and in the promised land at the same time. That's the tension of life. And into that, when everything is changing, when every, the ground is falling from beneath us, nothing is sturdy, we can't trust anything, God's character never changes, amen? God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God never changes, and our worship never changes. We don't just worship or follow Jesus or sing praise or glorify God when we're doing hunky-dory, right? We praise God all the time when I'm poor, when I'm hungry, when I'm beat down. Praise God. Still I say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Still I say, still I give praise. Still I say, the Lord Almighty is with us. This Psalm 46 is a song, a song to be sung in the worship, in the temple. We worship and praise God in the good times when we are in the promised land. And we worship and praise God in the worst of times when we are in the desert. Worship is not an invitation to withdraw from a world of suffering and violence and conflict, right? Worship is not dope we take a hit of to feel warm and fuzzy inside. Worship is not something that happens only when you're doing good. It's not an escape from disasters in life, from suffering, from conflict. Our faith is not a crutch. Worship embraces and acknowledges everything that is in life. It asks us to embrace everything honestly, wholeheartedly, and yet to still proclaim the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. And back to the sons of Korah. It's amazing that even in the midst of their story, their family story, is that their ancestors rebelled against Moses and were engulfed <laughs> in, in an earthquake and burnt in the fire from heaven. And yet here they are as a story of redemption, right? Even out of the war and the conflict, the rebellion, natural disaster, earthquakes, still they're able to give praise and lead the entire congregation in praise, right? In fact, it probably qualifies them even more to lead the congregation in praise because of their story. And we need to remember our stories, right? Not the happy stories we tell people when we say, how was your week? How are you doing? I'm great but our stories. You know what I'm saying? That story that makes us who we are, that gave us the scars, 
right? And we need to tell that story. In the sanctuary and in the world out there, tell the story because that's what, how people are going to see God. That's how God will be exalted among the nations, how God will be exalted in the earth. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the songs, the gift of songs that you've given us to sing uh, and to meditate in our hearts, um, not, to, not, not just to change our minds, but to move our heartstrings, to heal our souls, to give us comfort when we are broken and we are scared and we're not sure of ourselves. Be our fortress. Thank you for being the Almighty God, our refuge and strength and our ever-present help in trouble. In Jesus' name, amen.